Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, August 25th episode of Poets and Muses. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. You can follow us on poetsandmuses.com or via social media on Instagram, Twitter, or SoundCloud under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at the poetsandmuses.com website or at the upper right-hand side of our SoundCloud page. With us today is Bob Longoni, with whom I will be discussing his poem, Dining at Sunset in Pisa, and my poem, This Picture in My Mind. Before we do that, I am going to go over all the poetry events taking place in the Valley during the week of August 26th. On Tuesday, August 27th, from 6 to 8 p.m., Connect and Heal will be hosting its weekly poetry writing workshop at the Chandler Community Center, which is at 125 East Commonwealth Avenue in Chandler. From 6.30 to 9.30 p.m., Nocturnal, the Poet, and the Poor People's Campaign will be hosting their monthly The Art of Justice Open Mic and Art Show at First Church, which is at 1407 North 2nd Street in Phoenix. The entrance is in the back at the parking lot. Sign up for the mic starts at 6 p.m. From 8 to 11 p.m., King Kong will be hosting his The Underground Experience, which will take place at La Fleur de Calabaza, which is at 705 North 1st Avenue, Suite 110 in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 8 p.m. On Thursday, August 29th from 7 to 9 p.m., Long Known Publishing will be hosting its Phoenix Poetry Slam at The Lost Leave, which is at 914 North 5th Street in Phoenix. Make sure to get there by 6.50 to participate. From 8 to 11 p.m., Quinton Oni will be hosting his weekly open mic at Jobot Coffee and Bar, which is at 333 East Roosevelt Street in Phoenix. And now let us turn to our poet guest of the week, Bob Wangoni. Hi, Bob. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. You have brought with you today Dining at Sunset in Pisa. I'm looking forward to hearing you read this. But before we do that, if you can tell us a little bit about yourself so the audience knows who you are. Okay. I taught at the University of Arizona for 10 years, Mm -hmm. and I was in charge of the Poetry Center there part of the time. After that, I went to Pima Community College when it opened in Tucson. Okay. And I was there for about 25 years. Okay. And one of the advantages of being at the community college was that I could teach the poetry writing classes. Mm -hmm. At the U of A, they had established poets teaching those classes, and I was just a beginner at that time. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of the people who was doing the teaching became my mentor as far as the poetry goes, Richard Shelton, who is a pretty well-known poet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He helped me discover really what contemporary poetry is like because I had been teaching very traditional poetry. Right, right. Very formal Mm -hmm. compared to the way we write these days. Mm -hmm. We lived in Tucson, my wife and I, for uh, most of our married life. Mm -hmm. It was sometime after 2000 we moved to the valley. Okay. We lived in the East Valley first in uh, Gilbert. Oh, okay. And now we 
we live at the Beatitudes campus. I don't know whether you've heard of that. No, no, I haven't. It's a big place. We have more than 600 residents there. Wow. And I get to teach poetry there. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. So it's been wonderful for me. Great, great. How many students are you teaching now? We have small classes there, usually between 12 and 20, somewhere in there. So mm -hmm. right now, I think I have 14. Okay, wow. Yeah. That's a good amount. And they're all people my age. You know, what we right. do is we have experts from every field you can imagine there. Yeah. PhDs, former college presidents, former CEOs of companies. Wow. All kinds of people. And we all teach in our own area of expertise. Right, right, right. So I've taken classes in psychology from people who were nationally known as scholars. And the most memorable one was the uh, psychologist Jung. Okay. I had two people teaching me there who knew everything about Jung, and it, yeah. was, it was quite an experience. So we're both learners and teachers there. It's great. Wow, that sounds like quite the think tank you have over there. Yeah. The program is called Lifelong Learners. Yeah. One of the things we find out when we live there is that just because you're old, you don't have to stop doing the things you love to do. No, you don't. My mom, yes. she worked very hard when she was younger. She raised me by herself. Yeah. That was when we moved to the U.S., so it was very difficult for her to learn English at times because she was pulling a lot of all-nighters. Sure. But about nine years ago, I was able to find this online software where she could learn English. Oh. So I showed it to her, and she took it like duck to water, basically, and she's been learning that on her own ever that's, since. That's great. During the convincing stage, she was very resistant to it. Mm -hmm. But once she started, she just really loves it. And she used Skype as well to talk with her siblings across the ocean. So yeah. I think we never stop learning. As long as yeah. we want to learn, the opportunities are always there. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So it's, it's wonderful to see that. Are these opportunities, these lectures or, or classes, are they open to people outside of? Yes, yes. They pay a little more, but it's very inexpensive. For a six-week course, the residents pay $25. In fact, it's for as many classes as they want to take within wow. that period. Wow. And the non-residents pay $50, but it's also as many courses as they want to take within that period. That's amazing. Yeah. So where is the location of this? It's close to uh, 19th Avenue and Glendale. Okay. It's east of 19th Avenue. Okay. In fact, I have some old friends that I've had different connections with over the years mm -hmm. who come onto campus to take classes. Most of them came initially to take my class, but then once they find out what the opportunities are, they take other classes also. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Yeah. I mean, this is such good value for money, too, because these yeah. experts are people, you know, university bring in and charge thousands of I dollars know. for, I know. right? I That's mean, true. this is amazing. Absolutely true, yes. I'm so happy you shared that. Thank <laughs> you. I really appreciate it. Sure. Now, going back to you, so you did study poetry writing, but how did you arrive at writing poetry? Good question. It's mostly because I was teaching poetry. As I said earlier, I was teaching literature classes. Oh, okay. And so I taught a lot of poetry. I got to tell you this story. Please. 
I was at the U of A, and at the beginning of my career, I was teaching freshman English with a few literature classes. Mm-hmm. I had a family, mm-hmm. and I was in a situation where if, if I wanted to become a permanent member of the faculty, a mm-hmm. uh, tenured member, right. I would have to get a PhD. I had a, mis- a master's degree, okay? Right. So I took all the coursework to get the PhD. Mm-hmm. When I found out that the final exam was going to include only things that were not taught in the classes, oh. <laughs> I figured that would be maybe another five years of sitting in the library and right. preparing right. for that. So I was sitting in my office one day, I was still teaching, and I looked out the window and I saw some of the life out there with the students and whatnot, and mm-hmm. I started jotting a few lines down. Right. And that's when I realized that I'd rather write poetry oh, wow. than become a super scholar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. So that was my choice. And from then on, especially once I got to Pima College where I got to teach poetry. Right. Now, one of the advantages I had was when I ran the Poetry Center, mm-hmm. I hosted some of the biggest poets in the country. Right. Three of them have since been named Poet Laureates of the United States. Wow. These are people that I was able to sit down with and talk to and buy them steaks and things like that. You right. know, it, because they lived in the cottage next door. We had a guest cottage at okay. the Poetry Center. Okay. So I had that advantage. And almost all of them said, do you write? Mm. And at the beginning, I was very hesitant to say, well, I'm trying. Right. But after a while, they encouraged me. Different poets encouraged me. And then Richard Shelton, as I said, who was my mentor, he was instrumental in, in my writing poetry. That's wonderful. Yeah, some of your listeners probably know about him mm. because he became nationally famous when he mm-hmm. came out with a book about the Sonoran Desert. Right, right. He loved the desert. He used to get mm-hmm. up before dawn, mm. walk in the desert, and then come back and sit at his typewriter in those days, not the right, computer, right. and write. And so when I started writing, that's what I started to do. Mm. I just had to step outside my house, and I was in the desert. Right. And so I was doing pretty much that initially. So I wrote about two topics. One was my family, my memories, mm-hmm. all the way back to my New England childhood. Uh-huh. And the other one was the desert. Mm-hmm. A mm-hmm. lot of poems about the desert. It's really amazing. I'm from New York, so mm-hmm. this is such a change of environment for me, this yeah. wide open space. Yeah. I've been to Horseshoe Bend, but it's all very different. You know, just a few hours drive. I've had one poet here. Her name is Amber McCrary. She's Dine. And mm. she was talking about the area where her people lived and then also the area where her now partner, who's Autumn, come from. So she was saying how different the landscapes are even though both are desert that's right yeah well even between tucson and phoenix Mm -hmm. tucson's desert is much greener really than the desert here it has a lot more shrubbery and more trees like palo verdes and mesquite and that oh okay. Uh, and and a lot of washes that come through and so along the washes you get a lot of green growth right 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 it's, yeah. it's really a beautiful desert. It yeah. is. I, and then the creatures. When we had this house that was right on the edge of the desert, we had a sliding glass door mm-hmm. you know, off the bedroom. Uh-huh. And that's where I used to sit to write. Uh-huh. I often found out on the other side of the glass I had company. Right. These, these little creatures would come up and look in the, in, 
<laughs> and I actually wrote a couple of poems about those encounters. Right, right. It's sort of like Snow White a little bit, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 We understand our own human curiosity. We don't realize right. that other animals share our curiosity as they well. They do. Yeah. They do. They do. They do. Yeah. And it's really nice to gain their trust over time. Right. You know, if you interact with them long enough. And, and right. it's really nice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah. So do you mind name dropping a little bit and tell us who are the poet laureates that encourage you? Uh, the one I think of first is Charles Simic, because he okay. recently read up here. Oh, wow. Okay. At the U of A Poetry Center, the one I used to run. In Tucson, yeah. They bring poets up that read at the art museum here. They get, right. They bring two, three, four per season, I think. Yeah. Simic was the one I thought of first because I talked to him recently when he was up here. Some of the other ones, not necessarily the ones that became laureates, Donald Justice. Well, I, I didn't host Robert Frost, but he, he came before I took over the Poetry Center, and I was presently. Really? He dedicated the center. Okay. Yeah. I heard he was quite the personality. Yeah. Oh, he was. <laughs> When he read his poems, he looked like a stump on the stage, you know. <laughs> really? Yeah. The persona he projected, mm-hmm. or, you know, was that of a farmer, kind of a man from the country. Right, right. But at the same time, very sophisticated. He mm-hmm. managed to pull both of those things off. Yeah, not easy. Not <laughs> you know, easy. No. No. Man he, of the people. He sounded like a kind of curmudgeon when he read. <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's a restaurant here where three quarters of their restaurant is regular tables, but then a quarter of it is taken up by this kind of living room setup where this long sofa and chair, really? lounge chairs, and he has a small bookshelf. And I've actually convinced him to lend me his Iliad, which I took for much longer than he anticipated. Yeah. But he also had a book with Robert Frost's poems, so I was there one day and I just started reading it, and it was really amazing to see how prolific that man was. Yes, and he is very, very, very important poet Mm, because he straddled the old, more formal way and the changes that were taking place. Yeah, his poems are very conversational, Mm -hmm. which is not very traditional. Yeah, but it's very, very. Well, it's about the only way people write anymore. Uh-huh. It sounds like their own voice, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I, when I teach my course, I, I always include him, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if it's appropriate to the course, right. and talk about those things. Right, uh, right. In fact, living at the Beatitudes, which I've told you about, mm-hmm. when I mention to people that I'm a poetry person, mm-hmm. they say, oh... Yes, Robert Frost. They think of him right away. <laughs> oh, wow. Everybody has encountered his work in their schools, you uh-huh, know, in uh-huh. the school yeah, systems. Yeah, yeah. Which you can't say about many po- other poets. Yeah, he's the most quoted, I think, poet. I forget if it's The Path Not Taken or uh, another title. There are two that everybody just about knows. One of them, The Stopping by Wizardness, uh, Snow Evening, uh, ends with a line. And miles to go before I sleep. Yes. That's yes. become a universally known line. 
Yes, very much so. My Instagram is not helping me, but I actually wrote a poem based on the reading of his. I think the path not taken because it's apparently the most incorrectly understood poem yeah. or misunderstood, misunderstood poem. Right. But it's what makes him the most well-known poet as well. Yeah. Well, and you know, one of the things that operates in poetry that is extremely important is the ambiguity. Mm -hmm. It's intentional. Yes. It's not like prose where you try to be as unambiguous as you can mm -hmm. so that people understand exactly what you mean. Yeah. Poetry opens things up instead of shutting them down, yeah. instead of limiting them. He has that quality. Yeah. You read one of his poems and your mind just goes on a journey afterwards, you know, mm -hmm. from there. I'm still trying to think of some of the other poets I hosted. It's okay, it's okay. I want us to have time to also read your poem, so let's go to that. Okay. Um, <laughs> please, if you don't mind reading your poem, Dining at Sunset in Peace of Christ. I'll read it right please. now. Yeah. You know, I told you at the beginning that when I started writing, it was mostly either family poems or desert poems. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, this was one of the later ones. It's not one of the first ones I wrote. Okay. But it fits into a long succession of family poems. Okay, great. Dining at Sunset in Pisa, late August, for my grandparents, Archimede and Ernesta Grassi. This morning, we wandered somewhere along the edge of fields. You might have worked with a hoe, stumbling past a shed where either of you could have sliced off a chicken's head and caught the whiff of scalding feathers. Later, the scent of startled blood browning in a pot with rosemary, leeks, and thyme. We looked for names in a phone book. 24 Grassis, 16 Chuchis. Only names, nothing to suggest eight years of toil in Argentina, or the journey resumed, ending in a Quonset hut in Massachusetts, rows of beans and cucumbers, three wide steps to rest on, nothing to predict humid evenings swelling with the sound of Caruso, a new mix of things with smells to mark your place with children gone, soft yellow cheese, thin broth, simmering sauce, sweet pipe tobacco, fresh blue overalls from Sears and Roebuck, loamy soil on your hands, now, under the rosy glow of the tower looming at us over a squat building, we grow complacent with fragrances and red wine at a sidewalk table, discovering that Pisa at dusk is about the tongue, its intimate adventures with pasta, olive oil, garlic, prosciutto, and the soft, warm core of crusty bread. Oh, nonno and nonna, how could you forsake such aromatic moments, the company of sloping shadows to do your cooking in America? Or did you know already then you couldn't live without us? You needed us here at this moment on a lingering evening in ancestral Pisa, remembering you. Thank you so much, so wonderful. My wife and I went to Italy four times. Mm. One of the times we spent a lot of time in the Florence-Pisa area, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is 
where tourists go anyway. Oh, yeah. But I had a special reason for going there right. because my grandparents were from Tuscany. Mm -hmm. so, um, Which is pretty rare, right, in terms of Italian migration. Now, not so rare, but older generations tend to come from the south, like Sicily. Sicily was probably the one where there, there are more than any other part of Italy yeah, coming yeah. from. Well, maybe one of the reasons they don't leave Tuscany is because it's so beautiful. I know, <laughs> right? Just from your reading, your description of oh, the food, just the countryside, yeah, so, you know, the old country, that flavor, the chicken thing, I can totally relate. Yeah. I've seen that myself when I was yeah. a kid. <laughs> yeah, well, I remember that from my grandparents. That's the way they did their cooking. In, yeah. In this country, they still have the old customs. Wow. Well, it's coming back into popularity again. Ah, good. <laughs> Urban farm setting, a lot of people are doing that. That, that is true. Yeah. And, you know, I think that one of the biggest problems we have, especially with our youth, mm. is that they're not in touch with the earth. Yeah. They live in a place like this. They live on concrete and asphalt. Right. They live in big concrete buildings. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, most of them live in under more squalid conditions. Yeah. Yeah. But they're not out there in that great, beautiful, big countryside. Yeah, the food desert and everything. Oh, There's yeah. all these plots of land. I was listening to somebody who's chemist. He's also doing urban farming. So he actually has a farm table restaurant that supports this teaching farm school. It's south of Phoenix. So wow. Southern Phoenix get kids to learn to wow. to grow their own, yeah. do urban farm study. It's great. That is great. Yeah. yeah. And I think the kids today understand how important it is to have that change of lifestyle. Yes. As a matter of fact, I put my faith in younger people today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because there are a lot of things we've got to turn around. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's going to be up to them. And they already know that. Yeah, they do. Because they, do. they have their future invested in it, right? So That's right. They have to. And there was just an article out, the UN report, that millions of species are in danger of becoming extinct. Oh. And taking with it our ability to sustain our own species' survival. So, yes, one of the encouraging things mm -hmm. is that the preservation of the planet, mm -hmm. the life on the planet, has now become a topic of everyday conversation. Yeah. And people who never even thought about that before are becoming aware of it, even if they're not educated people. They, right, right. It's on the news, it's everywhere now, it's become an issue. Yeah. A, a big political issue. It is. And the thing is, the people who are poor, they tend to be most affected by climate change yeah. because they tend to live in low-lying areas, right. uh, areas that are being lost to sea level rise right That's now. Right. They're on the front line, so yeah. whether or not they're educated, they see it. They see and, it. Yeah, and that's what makes it so real yeah. rather than being in this debate of yeah. Whether or not it's man-made, who cares? You That's know, right. the fact is, it's happening, and we need to stop it in every way possible. And we have less and less time to yeah. change the direction of where yeah. this is going. Yes. One of the things I've observed over the years is that most people, where there are biases, mm -hmm. are people who have had no experience with the thing. Yes. You know, and for instance, with the races. 
Mm -hmm. uh, now that the races are mixing so well in this country, mm. we've made a lot of progress, although there's a group that's trying to counter that now. Yeah, but, yeah. I think from different perspectives, it looks different ways. I mean, for someone like me who is a person of color, even though my experience with racism is not as bad as, as other people with yeah darker skin than yeah. me. Unfortunately, it is still very present and it's something that's happening even in this day and age. And a lot of the people that I'm interviewing, especially younger, speaking both of hope and also the racism that we experience, yeah. I interviewed a 17-year-old Latina mm -hmm. who talks about the intersectionality between race and also economic hardship and yeah, of course. She, but she has so much hope. And uh, her name is Lupe Castro. You should definitely listen to that. She really just gave me oh, so much hope. And she's only 17. Oh, and it wow. echoes back to what you said about the younger generation giving us hope. Yeah. Because there is that. And I think yeah. if more people are like her, you can hear that she's not just speaking from her own experience, but also yeah. this similar trait that you shared, which is... Yeah. The curiosity to learn, to yeah. want to understand. Yes. Because none of us can possibly have personal experiences in every aspect that's, of life. That's right. So part of it is this combination between firsthand experience and having the imagination and empathy to understand other people's right. experiences. That's right. Yeah. That's what's going to save us. I hope so, yeah. That, it, that capacity we yeah. have. Definitely. We need more of that. And yeah. I, I think it's wonderful to hear you talk about that and then to hear her talk about that and see the connections between the different generations. Yeah. And to know that we can work together because there are lines of thought that are oh, connected. Yeah. That's so right. it's it's really wonderful. Yeah. But going back to your poem, okay. though, you had told me that in the version that you last sent me, that you're, you have put your grandmother's name as Teresa. Yeah. But you found out recently that it's actually, what is it? Ernesta. Ernesta. And you know how I found out about this? Mm -hmm. One of my sons has done the search into the family history. Oh, wonderful. He found out that when they came over, their names were... Archimede, which is the Italian version of Archimedes, the right. Greek name, right. and Ernesta. And I always thought it was Teresa. Well, first of all, when we were growing up, she was Nonna. Right. We didn't have to know what her first name was. Right, we just right. called her Nonna Grassi. Right. Nonna in Italian means grandma. Yeah. The only time I heard other people, aunts and uncles and whatnot, mm -hmm. talk about her, I had remembered they called her Teresa. Right. Well, that probably was her middle name or something. Anyway, her formal name was Ernesta. Okay. And once I learned that, one of my cousins was named Ernest, and now I know why. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, because from Italy, the tradition is to name your grandchild the same as the grandparent. That's very common, yes. In fact, one of my cousins is Archie. I knew him as Archie, but you can see where that name came yeah, from. Yeah, so Archimedes. Yeah. Yeah. And can you tell us about this process you mentioned in your poem, which is trying to find them? They came to the U.S. and yeah. they raised a family here. And yeah. you were, what, second generation born here? 
Well, no, neither of my parents were born in this country. Oh, okay. My mother was born in Argentina, because as I mentioned in the poem, right, right. they went to Buenos Aires first, and they lived there. The Italian population in Argentina is very high. Yeah, it is. And it's because a lot of people did what my grandparents did. Yeah, yeah. They, they went to Argentina. They raised the funds they would need then to take a steamship to the United States. Right, right. It took my grandfather... I think seven or eight years to be able to take his family to the United States. Right, right. So my mother was born there. Oh, okay. My father, on the other hand, was born in Italy. He's the other side of the family. Right, he, right. And he was born in the northern part of Italy around Turin, Torino. Oh, okay. Up yeah. there near the Alps. Yeah. And he came directly from there. Mm -hmm. Part of the adventure that my mother's family went through was living in Argentina first and then coming to the United States, to the East Coast. So does that mean that she spoke both Spanish and Italian? My mother? Yeah. Her education ended in the fifth grade, but by then she could speak Italian, mm -hmm. Spanish, mm -hmm. and English very That's well. Great. Wow. Because she, the Italian was in the family, the Spanish came with Argentina, right, right. and the school was there, mm -hmm. and then the English came after they moved here. And she was a quick learner. Yeah. She was an amazing woman because she had so little education in a language that was new to her, English. Mm -hmm. And when I was in college, mm -hmm. she used to write to me every day in English. Uh -huh. She never misspelled a word. She never misplaced a comma. She never misused the word. Everything was perfect English. I wish my freshman English students could write like my mother. <laughs> I wish I could do that. <laughs> when I think about the potential my mother had, because she didn't even read the newspaper, she didn't read books. Wow. And so she just she, had an amazing She had learned year. so much, she just learned so much uh, with very little exposure. And can you imagine if she had become a, uh, an educated person with a PhD? Right, what she right. might have done, I mean, because she had an ability that most people don't have. Yeah, yeah, she's an incredibly quick learner. What level of education did she attain? Only the fifth grade. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I yeah. thought you meant she left Argentina no, she after this grade. I think she was probably in the second or third grade when she came to this country. Oh, wow. And so she just had a few years in there to learn English. Right, right. By the time she finished going to school wow. in the fifth grade. Yeah. That's amazing. It That's is. really amazing. It, it really is amazing. Did you ever ask her how she picked up all the grammar rules? Because that's really difficult. No, that's that's a regret I have now looking back. I wish I had asked her that question. Right, right. We asked her all kinds of questions about her youth and whatnot, mm -hmm. you know, what it was like being raised in Argentina. Right. And she lived a, sort of an adventurous life. She used to talk about being in her baby crib. Mm-hmm. And her parents walking in and finding that there was a snake in there with her. Oh, God. <laughs> Things like that. Wow. Yeah. You don't think of that in no, those you eras. You don't think of that nowadays, you know. What, how can that happen? But, you know, they were living back then, and even in Argentina, where I think they probably right on the edges of civilization, you know, wow. between the big city and the countryside. Okay, okay, that's yeah. really interesting. I yeah. need to go to Buenos Aires. I need to go to Argentina, period. I hear it straddles different climate points. Yeah, I haven't been to Argentina, oh, yeah, but so. my mother told us a lot about it, and then my two oldest cousins mm -hmm. 
who sort of became mother figures to me when my parents were getting old and then these these older cousins were kind of straddling the two of the generations and then we used to go visit them and they would always make sure we ate properly and we got our exercise and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> they were born in Argentina. Okay. That's why they knew so much about it, so they used to talk about it okay. as wow. well. Later on, they lived in Cape Cod. Mm-hmm. My wife and I, of course, were married here and raised our family in, in, here in Tucson. Mm-hmm. But we used to travel a lot. In fact, you know, they're like homes. But yeah. That. When we went back east to visit, we got to live on Cape Cod mm-hmm. with those cousins. Mm-hmm. It was wonderful. One summer, I signed up for a poetry workshop over the weekend in Martha's Vineyard. So I was living with my cousins on the mainland, uh-huh. on the Cape. And I would take the ferry boat every morning to Martha's Vineyard uh-huh. on the island, spend the day there with poetry. And get back on the ferry and go back there. It was, it was like being in a dream world. Yeah, you know? it sounds like it. Yeah. Martha's Vineyard has such a reputation for being this beautiful, natural... Oh, it was just beautiful. Uh, yeah. You know the famous poet, Mary Oliver? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. She just died yes, she within did. the past she several did. months. She lived on Cape Cod. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And she became famous for being so closely in touch with nature. Yeah. I actually wrote a poem about the fact that I was exposed to her poem Wild Geese when she passed away because of uh, all the poetry organizations that was posting her poems. And Wild Geese is such a famous poem of hers. She was probably the most popular poet in the United States. Wow. Yeah. Wow. She was known everywhere. Mm-mm-mm. Even here in the desert. <laughs> Mary Eleanor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a long time since I took literature classes and mm-hmm. all that, and I write more because I need to write. That's why we all write. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I've been very much away from the literary world, and I'm yeah. also really bad with names, so <laughs> I never heard of her until her passing. Uh-huh. And then all of these postings came out, and I was yeah. reading some of her poetry, and it was yeah, it's she's so beautiful. She was totally in love with creation. Yeah. Totally in love with it. Yes. There was uh, such a magnanimity in yeah. her poetry. Oh yeah. Just yeah. opening up everything, right? Yeah. We're going back to your poems. Yeah. This trip that you had in mm-hmm. Tuscany and Pisa is yeah. especially looking in the phone book, how did that come about? Was it something Well, that... we were there, and I knew that they had lived their lives there, the most of their younger life, at least. And I figured, well, you know, there must be other Grassis there, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and Chuchis. Chuchi was her family name. I figured, well, maybe I could run into some cousins or something yeah, over there. Yeah. So we started looking them up, but I gave up trying to find cousins because there were so many of them, I didn't know where to begin. <laughs> what did I say? It was 24 Grassis in the phone book, mm-hmm. 16 Chuchis. If there had been two or three, I would have visited them. Right, right. And, and said, Did you, do you remember my grandparents? You know, uh-huh, it would have uh-huh. been so much fun to do that. Yeah. But with that many, I didn't even know where to begin. Okay. We were only there a few days. Right, right. So it wasn't specifically to go find your roots. It was very spur of the moment then. Yeah, it was spur of the moment. When we went, I knew we were going to go to Pisa Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. see where her 
my mother's parents came from. Mm -hmm. But I never even thought about opening a phone book when I got there. You know, right. it was something that occurred to us when we were there. Right, right. And it, it would have been very interesting if we could have run into some cousins. Yeah. Did they give you their old address no. for your trip? No, no, I didn't have any of that. Okay, so it was basically a little investigation of yeah. your own, right? Yeah. <laughs> wow, wow. That yeah. That definitely would have been really amazing. Yeah, yeah it yeah. would have been. I really love all the sensory stimuli that's yeah. in your poem. The food, and I don't have breakfast, so I'm really hungry right now. <laughs> and the reason why I chose my poem, this yes. picture in my mind, was on a second reading of your poem. Even though you talk about your grandparents traversing the world to get to the point where you are, yeah. right? I also felt like the poem itself is a journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It, and your grandmother has mentioned it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's why <laughs> my poem, I had just written a, the poem that I sent you a couple of days before I sent it to you. Oh, actually. really? Yeah. And it wasn't because of this. I was just writing it. Um, yeah, no kidding. Well, that's good to, to know. Yeah, I was at a poetry reading. It was Rosemary Dombrowski's Friday Poetry Series. So she's the Phoenix Poet Laureate. Oh, is and, she? Yeah, so she's holding this every fourth Friday where she brings in two poets to read. So I was at this thing, and one of the poets is from Tucson. He's part of the University of Arizona, Arizona. teaching staff. Oh, and her name is Rosemary yeah. Dombrowski. Yeah, yeah. Oh. His last name is Coquino, so oh. maybe it's also Italian. That's interesting, right? Yeah, sounds like it. His poetry, the book from which he read, specifically dealt with his pretty recent experience with a concussion. Oh, so yeah. he was using different metaphors, one of which was about the desert and was about landscape. And for some reason, this picture of the first line of my poem came in my head. Ah, it's yes. just me standing in the desert looking at this gigantic moon that's yeah. rising. Oh, and yeah. so I decided to write this. So I'm going to read this now and then we can talk more about Please it. Please do. Thank you so much. So again, this is called This Picture in My Mind. I swear the moon is the midnight sun, and the desert projects its golden tan into the sky, flushed like an adoring lover, watching you rise, as with the sunset that loathed to dip below the horizon, hanging half above for a last glimpse, like the child I was at grandma's dining table, Eyes barely over the surface, longing for comprehension of my uncle's soldering pen suspended above a circuit board city that reappeared each time my flight hovered above that urban jungle of a metropolis with matchbox houses and stacked Lego apartment complexes. Bring me back to my innocence now reflected in your reticence to rise fully above that artificial border between the rainbow of dusk and the contrasting two-tone of the night sky. Yeah. yeah. You know, the way you begin it, it reminds me of many experiences I've had where I have seen the moon hanging up there. Mm -hmm. 
the moon over the desert is very different from the moon elsewhere. Yeah, right? <laughs> it really, sometimes you can almost see the landscape. <laughs> yeah, because it's so dark out dark there. Dark and right? light yeah. patterns on it. Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. Sometimes I feel pretty lucky because even here, even though we're in the middle of downtown, sometimes yeah. when the moon is orbiting pretty close and when it's just sure, rising, sure. you can kind of make out some of the outlines. But I've actually never seen the moon in the desert. Uh, this is purely just imagination, imagine. also from yeah. movies or fantasy movies. Yeah. So it was really strange to have that in my head when he was reading. And he wasn't reading about this particular thing. Yeah. These things happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got that sense when I read your poem that your imagination took over. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. And <laughs> that's a very, very interesting thing. And you also, of course, get some family in there with your grandma and your uncle. Yeah. And with, it, with him, it was a soldering pen. That's good. There is this divide between what I know in one language and what I know in English. Yeah. And because it's been so long ago, right? Yeah. I, I don't really know what he did for a living sure. at the time, but he yeah. must have done some electrical engineering. Because I remember he, he was using a soldering pen and he had opened these circuit boards. I don't remember what exactly wow. it was for anymore because it was so long ago. Yeah. That's what brought to my head because every time honestly I take a flight because I used to live in New York this landscape that just reminded me so much of those circuit boards ah. it looked exactly alike basically ah, wow yeah yeah that's really interesting to know yeah and I like the contrast you create or feel between this depressing urban setting and what's going on beyond it yeah, yeah. Yeah, the artificial border. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we never think of buildings as fragile until we're, as the flight is climbing, right? Yeah. And we see them as tiny little things that are just, they look unreal. Just as I said, the circuit board, they're all so fragile looking. Yeah. In fact, that reminded me, of course, I'm a lot older than you, and my memories might be different of popular culture, but... There was a folk singer, my goodness, he was the most famous folk singer of his time. He had a song that he would sing about little boxes, little boxes. He saw all these homes as like little identical boxes that people mm -hmm. were living in, and you, you get kind of that same uh, image yeah, in here. And it's kind of uh, related to post-World War II building boom, right? Because yeah. it was basically at that time that they started doing a lot of prefab homes that are pretty much the same on the outside. Oh, they, yeah. I mean, the, yeah. these housing developments, yeah. like, everything was alike. Yeah, very much like in the late 40s, 50s, to 60s. Yeah, that's when this was happening. Yeah, and GI housing. Yeah. All of these, a lot yeah. of these buildings, apartment complexes sometimes built, especially for returning GIs. Yeah. It was, oh, yeah. Definitely, New York still has that flavor, even though we think of New York as renewing all the time. Yeah. I feel like Phoenix renews even more than New York because the Landmark Commission is very strong in its influence. So a lot of yeah. older buildings do get preserved, which yeah, is they nice. Because I like the ornateness of it. Yeah. But the 1950s, 60s, 70s, that era's architecture tends to get torn down a lot. Yeah. Um, because of this 
very all made in the mold. Yeah, it makes me think of that I Love Lucy episode when Lucy and Ethel was on the assembly line with the chocolates. <laughs> I don't remember that specific thing, but I can picture them doing that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because these houses are like made yeah. on assembly lines almost. You can go into this suburban sprawl, kind of, that's how it happens. Yeah. You can go into different streets and you will kind of get lost because they look so similar. That's right, that's right. <laughs> Having lived on uh, East Coast in Massachusetts until I was 16 years old, mm-hmm. I got a feel for that. But Phoenix is very, very different from oh, yeah. Eastern cities because it's so recently big. Yes. When I was finishing high school in Tucson, mm-hmm. our senior trip was to drive up to Phoenix and go to Encanto Park. Oh, yeah. And I remember being in a canoe on that little stream that's there and the canoe tipped over my friend and I were in it and we got we got all soaked oh, anyway yeah. but that was about as big as Phoenix was oh wow Tucson then maybe had 40 50,000 and Phoenix maybe had 60 70,000 right. compare that to what now how many million five million I five, think five million. I mean, it just isn't the same place yes Phoenix has always had this very steady growth since its founding. Yeah. But now even more so because yeah. there's a lot of Silicon Valley people who are moving their either back office or entire operations here as well. So that's, that's true. Yeah. Booming. Yeah, like it really else. is. Yeah. It really is. But, uh, it's also a bit scary for somebody like me, artists in general, because we get priced out very quickly, yeah. right? And yeah. I think in 10 years, if we don't watch the balance, it will completely change that's this right. cultural that's, aspect, that's right. which I love so much. When I was at First Friday, seeing the crowd a few First Fridays ago, I was thinking, this must have been what Greenwich Village was like in the 70s. Yeah. That vibrancy with creativity and people getting exposed to this culture and all these artistic expressions. I feel so lucky to be here at this moment. Yeah. When we moved up to the valley from Tucson, Tucson has always had a very lively artistic presence. Oh, yeah. I haven't been. I got to go. Yeah. And I didn't expect it up here. It's a wonderful discovery to make now about all the poetry that's going on in the, in the valley here. Right. Wow, I, I hadn't anticipated that. Of course, back then, I don't know how much there was going on uh, with poetry, but certainly now, and it's yeah. not just poetry, it's all the arts. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of open mics yeah. uh, right here, and people are opening up even more. And open mics, they have comedians, they have musicians, they have poets and spoken word artists, and then there are specific events, which, because I only announce the poetry events, I don't announce, but I know about story nights yeah. uh, that happens like at that. the Fair Trade Cafe every <laughs> Wednesday apparently wow. so if you're a writer if you're an artist and a lot of these cafes have rotating art exhibits yes. and it's not just downtown it's Mesa it's Tempe it's Chandler it's definitely out there in, it you is. Know, everywhere Gilbert when we were living in Gilbert I used to go to the Changing Hands bookstore that's in Tempe? in Tempe okay yeah lot. Yeah. yeah, they have a lot of events going on. And, 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 you know, originally they were located in downtown 
Tempe, I think it was. Okay, I and didn't the, know that. Yeah, and I remember visiting that. Probably one of the times we visited Phoenix. But then they moved to the present location in Tempe okay. first. Okay. And now they started the one in Central Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. And I've been to some events there too. Yes. Yeah, they bring in amazing writers yes. and poets. Yes. Their calendars are full of yeah. events that's catering to people of all ages. Yeah. I feel like I need to clone myself just to do all of these so many amazing <laughs> things happening, right? <laughs> well, one, one of the things that's happened at the Beatitudes that has made me very, very happy, mm-hmm. for a while after we moved there about four years ago, mm-hmm. I was the only poet on campus as far as I knew. Okay. And so I made it my mission to establish poetry as a presence on campus. And that's why I started teaching the classes. And Mm -hmm. then last year, Jack Evans, I don't know whether you've heard of Jack Evans. Yes, he's one of the hosts of Caffeine Corridor, which is Second Friday. Oh, that's where I met you. Yeah, that's where we met. That's right. (laughs) So Jack and I have become very, very close. We meet at least once a week and talk about our work. Nice. And then we're together now expanding the poetry presence on campus. That's wonderful. And he's going to be co-teaching with me in the fall. For the first time, I'm getting, I'm getting to teach a poetry class with another poet. That's great. I've always thought that team teaching was a more interesting thing to do than just teaching by yourself. Very, the the, the ideas answer. start bouncing off each other, you yeah, know? Yeah, If any of these co-guests that I have on the show, yeah. if you have any interest in bringing them to your class just to see, you know, what's out here. That's so, a good idea, yeah. I'll, have to, I'll keep that in mind. Yeah, please. I'm sure they will love to. Again, is it exchange of ideas because they all bring their own perspective. That's something that having lived in the valley for as long as I have, maybe 18 years, I've always wanted to become more aware of the local poetry community. Mm -hmm. And having Jack come and live on campus and his taking me to to that place. Caffeine Corridor, yeah. That that was one of the connections now that I have, and I'm so happy about that, and now I have this connection too. Yeah, yeah. Right. I don't unfortunately announce things that are further out than the close metro area, pretty much sticking to Phoenix, Tempe, Chandler, and also Scottsdale, because Mm -hmm. Christy White actually hosts something there. Uh, She does a Mm -hmm. writing workshop at the Scottsdale Library. I think it's the downtown one. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Scottsdale. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's in conflict with the monthly poetry workshop at the Tempe Changing Hands bookstore. So uh, uh. I'm trying to <laughs> alternate. Because I'm announcing the event, when I yeah. find out that there is a certain date that everybody just favors for some reason, oh, yeah. I mean, it's like, please, please listen to this calendar and spread them out because then there are days where there aren't really events. Yeah. But if everybody can just spread them out, then there are more opportunities for the poets to come out. More A variety of poets will come out to different things. And I love going to all of these different events and see all the different voices oh, that yeah. are presented. Well, you know, and that reminds me that one of the things that's going on now is that more of these separate efforts are working together. Yeah. Like the U of A series up here mm-hmm. is done in conjunction with ASU. Yeah. And I think also the, the art museum. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there are different arts communities that are kind of getting in touch with one another. Yeah, which Some is of wonderful. these things that are happening. And the fact that now the 
changing hands has a presence in central Phoenix. I think mm -hmm. that's making a difference too. Yeah, it definitely does. But again, it's the same thing. There is a lot of overlap. I remember in January, I think, was it January 11th or something? There were eight poetry events. The same time? Yeah, which <laughs> was so frustrating. I'm like, no, I want to do them all, to all, but you can't, right? Unless you, you have a Star Trek, one of those beaming machines, <laughs> like Scotty, beam me up, beam me down. Even then, because some of them are happening yeah. at the same time. Yeah. So that's why I'm hoping, you know, given the connections that people are forming and also my announcing these events, I'm hoping people will listen and be like, oh, okay, on this day, there are a lot of things going on. We can coordinate better so that there's mm -hmm. just much more opportunity for all the right. poets that are available. Because since you've been doing this for a lot longer than me, you must have seen recently there's a resurgence, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. there is. Yeah, I have theories about all these things. Tell us. My, my theory about that is that I think there's a kind of flourishing in the arts going on, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. especially from my point of view in poetry. I think a lot of that is a response to the bad stuff that's going on. Yeah, I, yeah. I think this kind of thing happens. Yeah. Whether it's conscious or not, Mm -hmm. We are responding. We're fighting against that kind of stuff. Yeah, we're fighting it in our own way, right? In because, our own way. Because it touches our lives on an everyday basis. On an everyday basis. Yeah, again, whether it's intentional or not, we're choosing to be in that reality mm -hmm. rather than the other one. Right, right. And, exactly. and it's growing. Yeah, it's growing. and we're making our own reality. We're making a better, yeah. more interconnected world right. in our small way. And I think that's what's going to change the world ultimately. It is from the ground up. Yeah. It is about these interconnections right. and interconnected communities. It's got to come from the bottom up. Yeah. Politically, too. And yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of talk about that, but making it happen is another thing. Exactly. Part of it is because there's big money pushing the other way. There is definitely big money, but the <laughs> thing is, we just have to realize each of our voices does matter, and we do need yeah. to speak up, and our actions matter. Ultimately, yeah. every drop in the bucket actually matters. Oh, sure. Yeah, sure. and we have to stop thinking of ourselves as if... As victims. Well, <laughs> we can be genuine victims, but survive. Extent. We can still survive this. We have to survive oh, yeah. this. Because yeah. if we give up, then they win. And this is not the kind of life we want. No. 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 So we have to keep fighting. We have to realize we have power. And that's really That's important. right. And I'm so happy that we finally got to talk on the yeah, show. I really appreciate it. And it would be wonderful if we can send people to your class. And if you want people to come from Phoenix or Chandler yeah. Or, yeah. and be at your class, it would be nice to let everybody on the Beatitudes to it, see what's out here right now. Yeah. It was started by the Church of the Beatitudes, which is a UCC church. Oh, yeah, yeah. And their church is just on the street because they started, and I heard the story about the origins of our community. It's really interesting because the man just died, in fact, who was the founder of, of oh, our... Oh, wow. He had been the pastor of the Beatitudes Church. Mm -hmm. And before they built their beautiful church, they decided that they had to do something to help older people 
-hmm. live better lives. And That's he started right. the Beatitudes campus. Oh, okay. And one of the beautiful things about it is that even though it was started by a church, mm -hmm. there's absolutely no pressure. We have atheists and agnostics and everybody living among us. We have Protestants and Catholics and Jews and Muslims. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. 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 I go to an event that's also hosted by UCC Church. It's the first church on 2nd Street. So the last Tuesday of every month, there is an event called Art of Justice. And every month is a specific topic. So you should come to that. I think you're talking about where my daughter goes to church. Really? First yeah. church? Okay. First church. Okay. Yeah, she goes there because of its outreach oh, wonderful. spirit, you know. So you should Well, she's down. invited me to come down. And yeah. In fact, sometime maybe Jack and I are going to go down and read. Yeah, please, please. It will be wonderful. Part of that program. Yeah, that will be wonderful. Small world, right? Right, right. That's much <laughs> wonderful because yeah. then we get to see all the voices because, as I yeah. said, each event has its own little culture. That's so right. So it's nice to mix it oh, up a bit. Oh, it is. It's wonderful. Yeah. 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 Before I let you go, yeah. can you please tell the audience how they can, where it, well, they, they can come to your class, obviously, from Beatitudes. You can tell people that they pay more than the residents, but they're still getting a bargain. Yeah, $50 is great from world-renowned oh, experts. Are you kidding yeah. me? Yeah. That's yeah, amazing. so, okay. I mean, I'm still trying to pay back student loans from basically getting that exact education. <laughs> my daughter is in her 50s, and she's still paying off her students. Oh, my God. Yeah. Isn't that terrible? It is terrible. This is not right. Oh. So that's one way that people can get in touch with you. But how else can they get in touch with you? Well, I, you have my email address. Yes. And where can people see your poetry? Is any of it online, or where do you sell your books? I know you have books. Where do they see my poetry? Yeah, or, where, or where do they? Where can they buy your books? Well, I only had two books, and they're both out of print. No. Yeah, all I have left is maybe a dozen of each. Okay. And so I'm very selective. If I have a very good friend, I'll give them one of them. Oh, but okay. They're okay. not for sale anymore. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, they, they were put out by a little press mm -hmm. in, in Tucson, and there's no connection with a big press. They tried at one time to hook up with one of the big publishing companies, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it never worked out. Right, right. Yeah, so... But U of A has its own press. The U of A has. Yeah. Yes, yeah. the U of A has. They might have published some poems. Mm -hmm. I'm just not aware of any. Okay. If they have, it would be maybe by Richard Shelton or somebody like that. Right, right, right. I'll have to look into that. If any of your poetry is online, I would love to put them up so people can read more of your poems. There are a couple of local online magazines that have accepted some of my poems. Okay, okay, yeah. I hardly ever send my work out anymore. Uh, and I keep telling myself I really should. I, yeah. I'm not writing as well as I used to, but... I've written a couple of gems in the past year or two mm -hmm. that I haven't tried to get published anywhere, but I should do that yeah, as a start. Yeah, yeah. I wrote a poem about, and talk about your imagination taking you somewhere. Uh-huh. Emily, Emily Dickinson uh, taking a tour of, of the desert. Oh, that'll be nice. Walking through the desert. Right, right. That's wonderful. And... Uh, it's a long poem, which, again, something I seldom do. Uh -huh. Maybe I should send you a copy of that just to look at. Yeah, love to. 
But you should come to either the Scottsdale or, or the Tempe Poetry Workshop. I think you would enjoy that. I would. The, the only problem is my time gets so tied up. Yeah. It's hard to believe I'm retired and I have a harder time fitting <laughs> things into my schedule than before I retired. Because just on campus, we have so many things. Yeah. There are always three or four classes I want to take that I have to pass on because I don't have time. Mm. And then my wife, she doesn't get around. She has to use a walker, and I right, have to do a lot right, of things right. for her. Right. So I have to make sure I have that time built in. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, I'll keep in mind that I should explore that opportunity yeah, to get more a, involved. Because it's only once a month, and I think their experiences might work well with what you're trying to do now to publish again, because they also have a lot of experience. Now, which... which one are you talking about at the moment? The one I've gone to is the Changing Hands Tempe. So it's Ch oh, Changing Hands Tempe. Yeah, so it's second Monday of every month in the evening. It's not on their calendar. I did read there once when I was living in the East Valley. Right, but that's the Friday one. Yeah, that was one of the Friday events. But I also know Cynthia Edlow. Do you know her? Yeah, I know Cynthia. Well, she's a very close friend. Okay, okay. We were writing partners for a long time because I oh. lived a mile away from her in the East okay, Valley. Okay, And, you know, I would go to her and say, here's my latest poem, and she would come to me, and here's my latest poem. Oh, nice. So we had a good thing going there. So she's the one who introduced me to the Changing Hands community out there. Okay, yeah. And she's still active there, I think. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the same people who go to the Friday reading... They are the ones who attend the second Monday workshop. Again, it's not on their calendar, but it is happening. So you okay. should definitely come. Well, I, sh I should talk to Cynthia about that because I talk to her once in a while on the phone. Yeah, I think she comes, but the last time I was there, she wasn't there. So. No, but she's, she still no would know that those things are going on. Yeah. Because she she's a very close friend of the woman whose name I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I know who you mean. I just saw her recently at yeah. a meeting. So. Yeah. yeah, I saw her recently at some kind of, at one of the readings. As well. Said hello yeah. to her. Yeah. Well, thank you okay. so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, yes, and thank you especially for giving me more information about what's going on. Absolutely. In the valley. Yeah. It's actually huge. It is huge. There are lots of things. And that is very on. healthy. It is very healthy. Thank you. Yes. The name of the woman who hosts the first Friday poetry readings at Changing Hands Tempe Bookstore is Pina Joseph. And the person who hosts the second Monday poetry workshops at Changing Hands Tempe Bookstore, her name is Patty. And the workshop's name is Poetry Roundtable. Be sure to check out the episode notes for links to Beatitude Campus's lifelong learning courses, as well as some of Bob's other poems and his books. The Urban Farming Initiative I mentioned in South Phoenix is called the Orchard Community Learning Center. I also put their link in the episode notes, so be sure to check that out, which is at soundcloud.com forward slash poets and muses. As always, you can follow us either on our website at poetsandmuses.com or via social media on our Instagram, Twitter, or SoundCloud at Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our newsletter 
either at the Poets and Muses website or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. And that concludes the Sunday, August 25th episode of Poets and Muses. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.